0: when I would go to certain places where I knew there were going to be lots of white people. And I don't know, not like passing for white, but passing for like, I'm good enough to be here.
1: We are Jason and...
0: Yvonne Lee. Wife.
1: Husband. Father. Mother. Actors.
0: Producers and
1: seekers, Educators explorers of identity
0: you're listening to logger lane spirits a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails
1: join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history you can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on Lane spirits.com And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Welcome to our first episode of season two of Lagra Lane Spirits.
0: Can you believe it, Jason?
1: Season two. (laughs) Uh, Dos. (laughs) Okay, let's do this, shall we? So are you ready for your cocktail, my love?
0: Yes. Season two starts with the Ramos Gin
1: Fizz. Yes. So cocktails this season are spins on classics. We are honoring, immortalizing, and becoming ourselves, the authors of history, And uh, we've chosen the Ramos Gin Fizz as uh, the the first cocktail of season two for a lot of reasons that we'll get into as we uh, get into this this episode. But I wanted to first uh, give you the uh, ingredients of what this wonderful cocktail is. The, The Ramos Gin Fizz is the most complicated, difficult cocktail to make in the canon of cocktails for a lot of reasons. But the ingredients are we have two ounces of gin, half ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of lime juice, one ounce simple, two dashes of orange flower water. I've swapped that out. I'm using uh, rose water because that's what we have in the house tonight. We don't have orange flower water. we have one ounce of cream and I've swapped that out with oat milk because I am lactose intolerant and can't have heavy cream. Very Californian of you. Yes, yes. Born (laughs) in Nebraska, but I'm Californian now. Uh, We have one egg white, Two to three ounces of soda water. Now, the reason why it's a complicated drink is you have to get that shake. The Ramos Gin Fizz is famous for a big, frothy, almost meringue head because of the egg white and the soda water. And so in order to to achieve that, you basically have to meringue up the egg white with you're shaking that thing. You have about three to five ice cubes in there and you're shaking it for a good five to ten minutes To break it down. And then you sit it in the refrigerator to let the head of the cocktail rise up for about three to four more minutes. It's a wonderfully complex New Orleans based cocktail that's very white in color. And we will get into reasons about the importance of that as we get the episode going as well. Yes. Well,
0: (laughs) that's your delivery of the recipe that gave me chills. So let's toast to that.
1: To, to becoming, becoming the authors, authors of history. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Let me let me read you a quote. It dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others. Or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. W. E. Burhart Dubois. W.B. the Bois, that dude, man. I, the more I read his work, the more, I, I don't know, the more emotional I get.
0: Agreed. And his work is an excellent lead-in...
1: To what we're going to be talking about in this here season, too.
0: So, last season, we talked all things identity and storytelling. Do we honor or exploit? Who are the authors of history, etc.? Friends, if you're new to Logger Lane Spirits, please go back and Listen. This season we're building upon identity. We're diving deep, as you like to say.
1: Deep diving, deep diving.
0: Deep diving into compassion, access and action, the race towards equity. I love this theme. This is a wonderful theme. Identity in all its beautiful facets has shaped who we are. Now that we know who we are, we will have to choose or be forced to navigate the world in certain ways. So today on our first episode, we are talking about systems of oppression and what we got to do to survive and thrive. We've, we've sort of pinpointed this notion about equity and why we don't always have it. And often, you know, we are made to live double lives in order to obtain the equity that, that we feel that we deserve. And so this led us to different systems that are used to, to keep us And I quote, in our places. I hate this quote. makes me mad. Anyway, over the next two episodes, we are going to discuss the concept of passing, both from a historical perspective and a modern-day purview. And we're going to look at this concept by swimming deep with a film that's near and dear to our hearts.
1: And pocketbooks. Hey.
0: (laughs) A film called... Passing, which is currently on Netflix. Okay, Jason, are
1: you going to be interrupting me like that all season? Hey, hey, blame our producers. I, I know my place.
0: Okay, well, I'm just <laughs> going to keep on moving then. Um, <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois's piece, Strivings of the Negro People, reflects on this notion of black Tunis, and it appeared in The Atlantic in August. 1897, if you August didn't get your education then. is my birth then...
1: month, by the way. Yeah. That's uh, uh, my birth, month. You're, my birth month.
0: you're doing oh, it again. You're doing it again. We celebrate my birth every every day. Okay, great. Well, what is life without a little celebration? I will give that to you, but all I'm going to say right now.
1: I married you for a reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, but sorry, sorry, sorry. Bringing it back. To set the stage for our conversation today, let's hear a little piece from Strivings of the Negro People by our good friend, W.E.B. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity
0: one feels his two-ness an american a negro two souls two thoughts two unreconciled strivings two warring ideals and one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self
1: into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost, he does not wish to Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He does not wish to bleach his Negro blood in a flood of white Americanism, for he believes, foolishly perhaps, but fervently, that Negro blood has yet a message for the world. He simply
0: wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro
1: and An American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows without losing the opportunity of self-development.
0: He does not wish to bleach his Negro blood in a flood of white Americanism. Yes, yes, (laughs) WEB. I really responded to the part of uh, where WEB says uh, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of other and mm-hmm. and I feel like that that was something that I was not really conscious of that I was actually doing um, you know until later on in life and and I think that it's it's something that we do as humans. it's just a way of survival. it's the way of trying to figure out how you fit in and how you relate to people. I feel like the dominant culture, the people in power, like they really take advantage of that basic human instinct of looking at yourself through other people's eyes because you're figuring out where do you fit inside this community? Where do you fit inside of this this dialogue? You know, trying to remind myself when I'm having these, you know, difficult conversations with myself, like am I seeing myself through my own eyes or am I seeing it through the dominant culture's eyes? which is so fantastically woven its purview <laughs> through all parts of life in ways that they're so insidious. We don't even understand. Talk about therapy. We need some damn therapy in this country.
1: <laughs> America needs a shrink.
0: <laughs> it's a circular experience. It's nonlinear uh, to get to the end. Cause every time you think you get to the end, then you see that you turn around the corner. Oh, there's another race that we've got to, we've got to get down and dirty with. Today, you know, we're talking about a specific phenomenon that parallels, uh, you know, what we've just heard from Mr. Dubois, which is the historical and current practice of passing. Jason, can you give us, you know, the, the short and sweet on passing for those who don't know?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely, Yvonne. Passing is when a racially ambiguous person of color, usually for reasons of social mobility, and also for reasons of safety, if they can will pass themselves off as white. This originally began as a way to escape slavery or help free other slaves. This would often mean they had to turn their backs on their families and leave everything behind to literally start a new life. This could look like, as we see in the film of the same name, a woman of color passing as white and marrying a white man who has no idea of her heritage. And one more term for you, passing back over, is when a person would return to identifying as black. Yup, and why
0: was that? They They got sick sick of being around around
1: all those white people. people. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, that actually is one of the main reasons why people stopped passing. Not only are you surrounded by racism against your kin, left behind or not, it still hurts, but you're also expected to participate in it.
0: I mean, wow. I mean, that definitely could wear you down to the point that the opportunities of passing for white don't outweigh the cost anymore because then you become like this self-hating person. You have to learn how to talk like the other person and actually embody that hate um, in order to survive. Or... I just can't imagine how that would chip at a person. When did I learn about passing? I don't think it was until, um, maybe until I moved to Chicago that I really understood, you know, kind of this concept of hearing about this concept of passing. And it wasn't really something that in my family that we talked about, I think mostly because, you know, being Black and Filipino, like I, in being in Arizona, you know, I stepped outside and I'm five shades darker than I am right now. my nose, I have all, when you talk about race and how people create, you know, the social construct of race you know, my nose is my nose is flat, my my lips are full, my my skin is dark, my hair is (laughs) woolly all the things that they talk about when they talk about what it is to be black, so there really is no way that I would even talk about um, passing in the historical sense, you know
1: Same here, I mean being raised in small towns in the in the Midwest, I was, you know, I had a, a 1970s Afro, you know, and I too am much darker in the sun. I never knew of the construct of passing until I learned it. I, it's also, I think, a generational thing for us, you know, being kids of, of a certain age. I won't mm-hmm. put your age out there, Yvonne, but <laughs> being kids of a certain age, of an advanced certain age, but mm-hmm. not, we're not talking 1920s here, right? Like, I mean, there's a different kind of construct going on when we were coming up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? So I learned it as an as a educational thing in school when I read books like Passing. Was it William Walter White, I believe, was the president of uh, the NAACP? I read about him when I was in high school. The story goes he went down to some southern town. There was a possible lynching that was about to occur, and they sent uh, for help from the NAACP and, and other other people's. And so this gentleman went down there and he's talking to some guy on a train and, as, and this guy was lighter. It was, was, could pass. They didn't know he was, a, he was, he was black. And so he was interviewing this guy. He passed himself off as a news reporter and he was interviewing this guy and he was like, so what's going to happen to this guy if you find him? And were, th- this guy was like, oh, we're going to lynch him. We're going, we're going, we're going to lynch him. He felt comfortable saying it to this guy. And so he's taking notes, like he's writing it as a, as a report this was in like the 1920s 30s so I, I i was always familiar with it as a historical element it but but no my i wasn't raised around the uh, consciousness of passing uh in in my in my family yeah that's kind of, kind of reminds me of the of the quote that irene's character says in the film uh uh, she says, "We're all of us passing for something or other, aren't we?"
0: Yeah, I, I actually, when she said that, I really connected to her saying we're passing for something because um, it brought. It's interesting, even at that time, like she said it. Which when did the book wrote the book in like the nineteen? No, okay, the nineteen twenties, the early
1: twenties. Yeah. Um, twenty
0: nine. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's trying to survive in one way or the other. I think that there have been times like for for me. I have you know I'm multiracial there are times in black circles where I'm until I really understood who myself I was passing for black without having the filipino there you know and always worried like am I black enough to be around these group of people so that was that was a type of passing that I was doing and then when I was around my filipino family I actually I actually felt a little bit more comfortable and more myself simply because all of my cousins are also black and Filipino and were all different shades. So that was like my kind of comfort zone, but I never thought that I could pass for Filipino around people who were not my family members because they often would like actually speak Tagalog or speak their native tongue and so I never really quite I never knew I knew that I could never pass in that sense. Um I was passing in a way when it when I would go to certain places where I knew there were going to be lots of white people. And I don't know, not like passing for white, but passing for like, I'm good enough to be here, you know, and hoping that I'm good enough to be in this space with, with these people. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, Trying to build up my social equity in a way that matched the room that I was in. But I d- definitely wasn't born into it that way, you know. Well, I guess. <laughs> sorry, I just got sad about all that, all that stuff that happened to me when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, no, I, 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 I oh hear you, I re- but I respond, I respond to what you said about, uh, about it all, but especially about the idea of, of, of passing for black, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm of German and, and, and African descent, and I was adopted and raised in a predominantly a white environment. And so I always knew I was black. I had an Afro in the seventies. I mean, you know, it, I'm, I'm light skinned, but I'm not that light. I always knew there was never an opportunity to pass, not even saying if I had the opportunity I would have, but I, I didn't have the opportunity. There was, there was no, as I got older meeting, I, I had the same type of experience Yvonne. And I think that's one, one thing that we connected on when we first met in Chicago in the late nineties mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. idea of, of being of, of a double consciousness of, of a multi-racial um, multi-ethnic background, I could never pass for the German that I am, (laughs) right? I identify now with it, but I can't pass for it. I can identify with my blackness more strongly and present that face to the world. But we're artists, we're complicated, and our heritages are are complicated. And passing is passport, right? if you will to get yeah. to get into the room right. it literally allows people to exist
0: yeah i actually want to go and find out like who came up with that term like how did it become how did it become a way of survival you know that, that someone actually created this construct of
1: this is well, how it's white we supremacy su- survive We've, it's white supremacy it's it's a white nationalist thought but people now pass by voting republican right they find a mm. way to exist within the power structure, Yeah. right? And yeah. you know, I too am interested in what how we kind of condensed all of that down into passing, but a, a lot of that is just based out of sh- the sheer need to survive. I've existed as a black man in this country my entire life, yeah, and I'm proud of that. But I'm also proud of my German roots too, which I embrace. Yeah, another yeah. film along these lines is *Imitation of Life*. The in the canon of exploration. There are two great versions of that movie, I- Imitation of Life. These themes have been explored as long as storytelling has been ex- in existence in this country. I mean, W.B. Du Bois himself also says that the question of the 20th century is going to be the race question. Mm-hmm. We're still asking that question. It's now the question of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Because we're up against a monolith of white supremacy in this country, frankly.
0: Yeah. Well, wow. Well, I think that's a great segue, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess, you know, we're talking about like a modern day film. So as yes, for those of you who are listening a few years ago, our film company, Logger Lane, uh, came into this little film, little big film called Passing as Executive Producers. It's directed by Re- Rebecca Hall, a first time female director. And the film is based on the 1929 novel of the same name by uh, Nella Larson. And the film is about two high school friends, black women, that after high school, one goes to live in Manhattan and pass as a white woman, and the other stays in Harlem and lives as a black woman. And the two of them see each other, and then they begin to desire what the other person has, and then you see their friendship along that journey. And it's such a a beautiful uh, exploration of being a mother, being a Black woman, middle-class Blackness during that time, and how do we survive? And we got involved with the film because our friend Brenda brought the film to us. And one of the things that Nian Yang Bon Jovi wanted was to make sure that the
1: the, the lead were, producer on the project. Nina sorry, is the yes, lead producer on the, on the project.
0: Thank you for, for pointing that out, Jason. She wanted to make sure that the people who were supporting the film were people who also actually represented who was at the center of the film. So women of color, women also supporting the film from all different perspectives. And I just loved that story about it. I loved the, the screenplay that Rebecca wrote. I loved the team that was involved with it and it just in an opportunity to work with Brenda and to work with Nina was just, it was amazing the, the way they ran the set was beautiful.
1: And also just to add in, I don't know if Yvonne, Yvonne, you're a bit too uh, humble to speak to this, but, I, but I'll say it. One thing that I wanted to just to add into what you were saying, Yvonne is three of the executive producers are Chaz Ebert, Brenda Robinson and Yvonne, because we wanted to show, and this was under Nina's leadership, from the producing space, the team wanted to show women of color in all positions, right? And so to be in allyship in support of that, we did not advance Lagra Lane Group executive producer card. But we advanced Yvonne in that position and for that reason. And I'm thrilled to be able to do that. I get a nice uh, special thank you uh, at the end of the movie, which I'm very proud of.
0: <laughs> I think that might bring us to bringing on our guest. Yes? Yes. All right, Jason, listeners, and now my empty cocktail glass. I'm taking that segue to bring on our two guests for this episode, who we are very lucky to call friends, Monique Marshall and DeMille Halliburton, an L.A. power couple who have been serving our communities for decades, Babe. Can you help me out with another pour of that Ramos gin fizz while I introduce our guests? Huh. Like I said, tonight we are chatting it up with Monique Marshall and Demille Halliburton. Monique is the founder of Monique Marshall Strategy and Consulting and is a veteran educator who has been working with young people in K-12 independent schools for 30 plus years. Monique is a leader, in my opinion, in every sense of the word. Monique is one of the founding board members of SoCalPOSIS, also known as Southern California People of Color in Independent Schools. And this organization is dedicated to supporting students, families, faculty, and staff of color in independent schools, as well as offering a variety of annual programs for Los Angeles, area independent school educators, and families. My friend has presented workshops all around the country, with a focus specifically on diversity, equity, and inclusion work with young children. I love that part because, you know, we have young kids too. Her presentation topics range from challenging gender, stereotyping, inspiring activism, and creating anti bias, anti racist curriculum to building the partnerships across differences. I have learned so much from her this past year as I've been doing my own versions of EDI work at my kid's school, and she is going to add some serious flavor to our conversation tonight.
1: Here's your drink. I, I hope it's as good as the first. Can I talk about my man, DeMille?
0: Of course. Take the mic.
1: DeMille Halliburton is a principal at Epic Insurance Brokers and is one of the most sought after advisors in the business. He has specialized in the sport and entertainment industries, working with film, television, and animation production companies, music touring, special events, and sports entertainment personalities for over 28 years. DeMille sits on the board of directors for a wonderful nonprofit called the Black House Foundation, an entertainment powerhouse facilitating aid and resources for Black filmmakers, and also holds a seat on the board of Film2Future.org. That's film, the number two Future.org, which provides underserved L.A.-based teenagers access to professional-level filmmaking programs and employment opportunities. Monique and DeMille also have two beautiful children, and we are so lucky they have made the time to chat with us tonight. So without further ado, it's cocktail confession time.
0: Hello, hello, Monique and Demille.
2: Hello.
1: Hi. Hey, guys. <laughs> it's 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 great to see you guys.
0: Yes. So on this episode, Jason and I have been exploring um, our own understanding and experience with the concept of passing, uh, the history of it, and you know we even revisited W. E. B. Du Bois's notion of Tunis We are so excited to have you both here because of of your you know, our collective experiences and perspectives on access and empathy, compassion. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you both for being here. DeMille, I just want to start this out with you, sir. I remember when we first met and we started talking about what we were both uh, doing and you had mentioned the agricultural work. And I, I just wanted to lead in and start in on this conversation as we talk about access and compassion in the work and compassion in our own personal mission. And I was just wondering if you could start us off with a description, discussion of your work with CLA. I was introduced to them because
2: for years, Monique and I have been living in uh, South LA for, I think we figured out 17 or 18 years. Something like that.
1: Hmm.
2: And for a lot of those years... We go outside the neighborhood to get good organic produce or prepared food at a restaurant that's not deep fried or, you know, just not healthy fast food. Mm -hmm. So, with some people, like minded people in the neighborhood, we started a food co op. And for years, we've been trying to. Uh, have a brick-and-mortar store. And from there, I kind of drifted off into a a different idea, and I had partnered with um, some like-minded restaurateurs to open up a place in the neighborhood where the food was made by local chefs and entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. There was ownership and feedback from the community. And in that process, I met, I was introduced to the executive producer of CLA. I ended up being on the board <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and COVID hit and the farmer's markets that CLA uh, oversees had to shut down for a little while. And we needed to figure out how do we support the farmers so that they survive and also how do we feed families that are in need, who are out of work because of COVID. So we got a grant from Cedar Sinai and with the help of Los Angeles football club, they let us use their driving area drive-through. We fed every Wednesday morning for I think 10 weeks, about 1200 families. So we were able to- pay the farmers for their food, and we we're able to give food away to those families. The, so besides managing and operating those farmers markets, there are small vendors that sell prepared food at the markets that they support. Mm-hmm. And we also try to do more stuff in, in the
1: community as well. That's that's incredible, and that jumps out wow. so strongly to me to share. I don't know if you, if you know this, but I was adopted, and my my family that raised me uh, they were very active and in, in the Midwest. They uh, uh, operated Archer Daniels Midland, so I come from a big ag family. Oh wow! Uh, and now we're responsible for shepherding my grandfather's legacy. So I would love to continue that conversation. Yeah,
0: I definitely love hearing about the the impact that you had. Yeah. Well, I, I just think about being able to feed 1,200 families and the impact of that of who those 1,200 families impacted because they were able to eat and feel safe, and who those people impacted. And so, it's not just 1,200 families; it's everybody whose lives they touch that were also touched with that. So that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah,
1: we have the Happy Meal on the corner. We have the the the, the liquor store on the corner. You know, we don't have the sustainable farming mindset in, in, in certain places, right? And so to, to advance that yeah. narrative and drive that home hits on a lot of levels too.
0: Monique, I was curious as our listeners are getting to know who you are, as we dive deeper into the conversation, I'm so curious about being a social studies teacher at Westwood and all of the things that you did there, teaching social justice, you were the co-chair of this, head of that. And I'm wondering, what is that moment that you decided to Take everything that you've learned in, in educating kids and what you learned from them, and then decide to take it into institutions and spread it around. Like what was that moment you said, okay, I've got to make this move to affect, you know, as we were saying, the 1200 families and now you're affecting on an institutional level. So what made you mm-hmm. make that choice?
3: It was Wildwood. Song. Wildwood. Yeah. What did I yeah, say? There's so many W's, Westwood, I, say, I think, but there's so I many W's. Westwood. It's oh, not,
0: it's not I'm surprising. So sorry. <laughs> it's you know okay. what? Every time I try to think of Wild Wildwood, I was like West. Well, so I just had that moment again with you. <laughs> it's <laughs> it was, on the West side. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, after 25 years at Wildwood and where I started out at Bank Street, um, also doing, doing the work, doing equity and diversity work really specifically with young children and their families. That's kind of where my heart, my heart was. That was a bank street school in New York city. I'm i I'm a wondrous happenstance kind of person. You know, I don't have a whole lot of straight line plans. I just kind of live in my moment and then things happen and things kind of drop in and they're the just right thing. So, so really kind of feels almost like a snowball. Like over the years, the work with individual students and their families and my colleagues started to spread. Wildwood does have an outreach center. And so I started doing some work with the outreach center. And then I started doing, you know, workshops here and there, you know, and I started, I don't know, I just kind of Ended up in the world outside of my little world. And as a teacher, your own classroom really is a whole world. And there's plenty to pay attention to in there. Um, And so you can get pretty myopic. You can get pretty just stuck. And it's beautiful. Uh, But what started happening was like I started looking outside, I think, of my my little world into all these other little worlds. I was getting little peeks. It was exciting because people outside of the immediate people that I was touching started responding and saying like, oh, we'd like more of that or, oh, we're interested in that. And that was great and I love people. So again, it kind of snowballed into something bigger when finally the, the outside of school work was competing with the inside of school work. And it felt like, oh, I guess I have to make a choice. You know, I have to pick a direction. And yeah, the opportunity to launch my own business, Monique Marshall Strategy and Consulting, really crystallized right around 2019. And then in 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, it became very clear that Mm -hmm. there was a lot of work to do and Mm -hmm. the work needed to happen. Yeah. It, it, big ripples all over the place. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I got so many calls. <laughs> and I think a lot of diversity <laughs> equity practitioners got a lot of calls. Yeah, um, And it was exciting in in a sad way, you know, just to see like people's eyes were opening and people were waking mm-hmm. up and it was a wave of wokeness, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so that's kind of how the doors opened in that direction for me. And it's been pretty incredible ever since.
0: I get totally creative too. Is like, oh, let's do this. Let's do a podcast. Let's. What do the kids want to do? What do they want to say? How do we bring it all together? And you know, so I like listening to all the things that you have on your website, (laughs) all the conversations.
1: Because of the George Floyd, the tragic incident that occurred, and the wave that occurred after it, what do you guys think? Are we going to face a brick wall of supremacy, or do we feel like this momentum, this movement of EDI, DEI work? How much are we moving the needle?
3: Hmm. I mean, you're a historian, so you, you know, I'm sure you could track even better than I could just just the waves, right, of, of how the work comes. I'm going like this with my hands, right, in waves. And I think that resistance always happens and resistance also pushes us forward. You know, it stops us and it pushes us at the same time. So Mm. the resistance doesn't scare me um, Mm. or or surprise, right? Surprise probably isn't just for surprise anybody here. I think that here's what I think is different, uh, at least certainly different from when I was a young child. I was just in a fourth grade classroom, and these young people. I was not their teacher until just yesterday for one hour, and they were so awake, and they had this language that there's so much power in language and in words. I asked them about, you know, how people are different and alike. And they came up with the most amazing list. They were like taking apart words, you know, they were talking about homosexuality and heterosexuality, and they were talking about, you know, ableism and heterosexism. And I was like, yes, fourth grade, you know? (laughs) And and so uh, I think that's huge. I think that you know when, when language enters the conversation and when it comes in, yeah. when children are, are young, I, I feel like you can't stop that wave. You can't take away that language yeah. from those young people. They know things now that they're awake to things that, but I was, I, frankly, I was fast asleep yeah. uh, mm-hmm. at their age. Yeah. So yeah, to me, I see a lot of opportunity for forward movement in the young people. And and I suppose that's always true, but specifically around language and like our growth and how we're seeing the world.
1: Drawing that direct connection between agricultural nurturing and educational nurturing and how we are. Our, our kindergarten kid, Maximo, came home from school last month, was Black History Month. He's talking about Martin Luther King, he was talking. I was like, like, what do you know about Martin Martin Luther King? But he was breaking it down. And I was like, you're in kindergarten. That is incredible. The concepts, the ideas, the thoughts are in his eyesight, in his mind at such a young age. And it's, yeah, that's impactful. Mm
0: -hmm. And empowering for those young people. Yeah. Monique, one of the reasons we were thinking when we were thinking about this particular conversation and we were like, well, who could our guest be? Who could our guest be? And I remember, and there was a conversation that you had, um, that you shared. What was it called? It was called film conversations, or I think
3: camera conversations.
0: Camera conversations is what it was yeah.
3: called. Yeah, and you- yeah, Todd Feldman, really great guy. Yeah,
0: and you shared this beautiful, this very moving story of the moment you realized. This is what I gleaned from it: the moment that you realized oh. how the world saw you versus how you saw yourself. Yes and to know that that was happening for you in college. And then it made me kind of go, oh, what? when did that happen for me? So I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, we're, we've been talking about passing, we're talking about Tunis. you know, Jason and I talked about earlier, we talked about the history of all of that. I, I'm interested in if there's a relationship between the two, I guess. hmm Yeah,
3: I'm, so I was raised on the Upper West Side, Manhattan, New York, New York, and I was raised by my white German-born mother, And my black father was in and out of the picture. And that was okay with me. I'm an only child and my mother was it. And I was raised though, you know, by a white woman. And so you see yourself in your parent. And so I think what happened for me was my journey was beautiful and long and complicated. And she was my mirror. So I end up in college and remember I've been raised by a white woman and and typically here in the United States of America, white people are taught that like the way to get over racism is just to not talk about race. So I did not have any conversations about race, about racial identity, didn't talk about skin color. And so I end up in college and I'm a junior and I have an eclectic group of friends one of whom is another biracial person, but of course, at this point, neither one of us mm-hmm. knows the term biracial. Kind of scroll yeah, back right, to those fourth right. graders mm-hmm. that had all those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't have any words, so I had no, I had no words for my own identity. I'm a light-skinned black woman, but I, I'm, I'm, I look at myself and I'm like, yeah, I'm a black woman. However, yeah, it took a minute to get there. Um, not that I, kn- I ever pushed away blackness. I literally just. Yeah, I kind of was raised like a white person in America. Like, I don't see color, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Crazy. And so junior year in college, we see this sign uh, across our campus that upsets both of us because guess what? We both have white parents, you know, and a parent of color. And so my friend and I are upset by this sign that says, all white people are racist. Very provocative, very large. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, 1990, 1989, maybe. So we end up in this auditorium. We both are, you know, so perturbed, like the rest of the white people around us. We end up going down to the front row and sitting in the front row saying to each other, we're not going to stay long. You know, this is a horrible thing. I don't know what this is, but we're going to probably leave soon. <laughs> Usually don't sit in the front row when you're going to do that. Uh, and the black man that was leading this, like, incredible... Uh, conversation about race that none of us at Skidmore College had ever had before. He did a whole lot of things, um, but the the most impactful for me was that he he posed this question and he said, you know, you're lost in the desert and there's a, a white woman, and there's a black woman on the porch, you know, which house would you go to? It was a much better story. But I sat there wondering like, where? where would I go? And I knew what the answer kind of was supposed to be, but I kind of thought maybe I'd have a different answer. And I tentatively raised my hand and he called on me. He asked my name and I told him like, I'm really confused. I was raised by my mother, she's white. I don't know where I'd go and uh, or what I'd do. And he said, Monique, do you mind if I ask the audience a question? And I said, okay. And he said, please raise your hand if you see Monique as a Black woman. And like, you know how you feel something Mm. before you see it? Mm -hmm. And I just, I turned around and the place was packed and all the hands were up. And that was it. It was like I was looking in this mirror for the first time, and I was clearly shook. (laughs) The guy invited me up on the stage. He said, I usually don't put Black people on the spot like this, but if you'd (laughs) like to come up here. And I was like, okay. And I went up to the stage. He held my hand, and he had me look out into that audience, and he said, Monique, look out there at all your Black brothers and sisters. And I looked at, you know, the sprinkling of black folks that were there in that in that auditorium. And I realized I was a junior and I did not know any of them. And they did not know me because to them, I've been passing, right? To them, i had been like just kind of getting on. And to me, through my like white lens at the time, I think I just thought, well, why are they just all sitting together at yeah. the cafeteria table, you know? And we looked at each other for really the first time. And he said... Tell your black brothers and sisters I am a black woman. And I said, I am a black oh, woman for the first God. time in my whole life. And I had tears going oh, down my oh, face, my and God. they had tears going down their face. And then he said, Oh my God, look out there at all your white brothers and sisters and tell them I am a black woman. And I, was like, oh. I said, I am a black woman. And I don't remember anything else because I think that whole experience was for me. <laughs> I don't think you did anything else. <laughs> but um, at some point oh it God. ended and I, I floated up the stairs because remember we were still at the bottom. We did not leave early. Floated up the stairs and at the top, every black person at Skidmore College was waiting there and had put their arms oh around God. me. Wow. Yeah so that was that was it that was my like open opening my own eyes to like race in America to my own racial identity all of the stuff that started kind of flooding in um that I think I had suppressed or just put on the back burner wow. um yeah that was that, that's my story you, that, well I don't know if you really wanted me to
2: retell the whole thing but there you go oh
0: well, girl <laughs> you tell DeMille will tell oh
3: you my God. you asked me to tell a story I'll tell you a story <laughs>
2: Mine mine was more violent than hers. Mm. (laughs) From kindergarten through 12th grade, maybe eight kids of color went through that whole school system. It was a public school, but pretty much private because it was a very small neighborhood in in Westchester. Out of those eight or so, five are from my family, which tells you how many... Yeah. Black kids went through the school. Mm. So I too, even though my parents were black, I think of it as like I was like Michael Jordan. Like I wasn't like all the black people. You're DeMille. You're not black. You know, they act, people who actually say yeah. that. And I didn't have the language or the experience. So I just, I didn't take it negatively. I was like, okay, I guess, you know. <laughs> so I'm in college and. I had taught tennis for a long time to make money. I was I taught at a camp during the summer and in the winter at a club um, in Westchester. And one of my friends, who was a white female, came to visit me on campus. And at that time, um, the drinking age changed, so there were no, you know, liquor, you know, no keg parties that were legal at the school anymore. And that night that she came over, there was an illegal keg party in the back of a campus. So we're heading back there and it's dark and we had to walk down this hill past the tennis courts. And as I'm walking down the hill with this white woman, this drunk white basketball player who happened to be from Boston, <laughs> uh, yells out and calls me a beer nigger. Never heard the phrase before. It's like, get out of here, you beer nigger. <laughs> I was like, what the? Yeah. And at first I was like, first of all, I was embarrassed because I've got this friend of mine with me. And then he said, you're a Bill Cosby looking motherfucker. You know, get out of here. It's like, okay. And then, and I was shaking it off. My mother worked on the campus even before I went there. She was a receptionist at a, at a dorm. So everyone knew her on campus. So this wasn't like a typical, your mother's or whatever. She said, I'm, he said, I'm gonna kick your ass and I'm gonna kick your mother's ass. Oh shit. And oh, wow. something snapped in me, cause I am not wow. a violent person. We ended up rolling down that hill. That would do it. I hyperventilated, uh-huh. somebody took me away and my friend and I walked across mm-hmm. campus. And in the middle of the quad at night, that 10 white basketball players stopped us and started yelling profanity and and other language, saying, I heard that you beat up on my friend, blah, blah, blah. Out of nowhere, this wall of black students (sighs) came between me and these white basketball players. Mm. Similar to Monique, you know, uh, I... I had friends in all different shapes and sizes and colors. But when I would go into the cafeteria, it was funny. I was a a commuter, but no one knew it because I was on campus all the time and I snuck into the cafeteria and everything. Mm -hmm. I was not a member of the Black Student Union. I had Black friends on campus, but I wasn't sitting at the Black table in the cafeteria. I was with my friends. Out of nowhere, they came without question and... Mm blocked these guys from beating the shit out of me. And that was the first time that I really not only saw my Black brothers and sisters on campus, but also realized, oh shit, like, I'm, you know, I knew I was Black. But, you know, it was just a big slap on the face. Yeah. And so it was a little more violent than hands in in the auditorium. But
1: but both leave the mark, right? Like my mark was also college, early 90s. Um, I have two. One was, I was a history major, theater minor, and I was in an English class, and uh, I was introduced to Langston Hughes's poem, Cross. It ends basically with, I'm paraphrasing, brother Hughes, but he says, my rich father died in a big old house. My mom died in a shack. I wonder where I'm going to die being neither white nor black. Hmm. And, uh, the professor was, a black dude. Hmm. I was one of the only African-Americans, mixed race, African-Americans, black, black boys in the, in the class. And that poem shook me. I fancy myself a poet. I, I write some and that poem shook me. Uh, where, where am I going to die being neither white nor black? And, uh, and he saw that I was shook and I was sitting in my chair and I was leaving the classroom. Everyone had already left. And this dude, he said, I knew that was going to affect you, Jason. And I was like, what? No, man, I'm good. I'm, I'm all right. Trying to uh, walk it off and, and, and stuff. And I walked away and it's been stuck in my mind for the past 25 years about mm. how he basically handed me that poem, knowing the impact mm. it was, it was going to happen, what was going to happen to me. And then being raised in small towns, I was, I've never been able to pass. and Not that I ever even would have if I could have, but around my white family in the Midwest in the 70s when I had the Afro, it's kind of fairly obvious where I'm coming from, <laughs> you know. But, it's, but to be able to navigate and maneuver through those various scenes, I often sometimes think that I've more often passed for black than passed for white. Mm. Uh, because I, I never could, but I had to learn my black culture I actually had to actively study it. And then I mastered it, of course, you know. Well, you know, we we master languages, it's what we we do.
0: As you guys are talking, I'm I'm thinking to myself, like, when did that happen for me? Hmm. And, you know, my dad is from Macon, Georgia and we grew up in Arizona. Hmm. So I felt like I knew all the time that I was black. (laughs) I think I, for my dad, I remember the way that he used to talk about white people and i was like oh is my dad racist and then as i got older i realized oh he's not racist he is the oppressed in this situation because of the way that he was being treated but i but i remember probably in fourth grade that i think the teacher was trying to teach us about the differences of everybody in the room and so she, as she would talk about like the different ways that everybody looked in the room you know this is in arizona whatever 1980s something like that and I remember that my friend Tanya Milinkovic would look at each person as she would point it out and so she you know looked at me and and I used to wear you know my hair in braids and beads and and all that kind of all of that of the 80s 70s and 80s of that time and that was probably the first time where I remember going back to my mom and saying mommy because my mom is Filipino and my dad is black and I was like well what color are you oh, well, what color am I, am me, am I, are you peanut butter and I'm chocolate? Are you? And it was that conversation in that class that made me start finally, like actually trying to figure out how other people were perceiving me. Mm. But then it was my dad being from the South that put value on it in a way that I was not prepared to handle, which was like, how can I now be more like what white people think? A, gr- a person like me looks like, should be like, do you mm. know what I mean? Like very following the law, standing in line, being as smart as possible, like 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 nothing, that they couldn't tell me that I was less than, mm. you know what I mean? I was trying to figure out how, whatever your perception is of black and how my dad talks about it and how it has made him feel, I was trying to be the opposite of that as I was growing up. So mm. it definitely... I became an AKA. So then I was like, Oh, Alpha Kappa, Alpha, Skiwi. I've never been good at (laughs) Skiwi. You know, that was probably one of the first times as well, like in college where I felt like, Oh, people are embracing me. Um, And then to Jason's point, like, Oh, at some points, I feel like I'm in the traditional sense of passing in terms of passing for white. I was also feeling like I am not black enough, not Filipino enough. And what I really am, which made me cry once I really took it in, was like, oh, I'm a multiracial. I'm multiracial black. And that's what fits me. And that's what makes me, like, I don't have to belong one way or the other. I still had another step, even in this past year, to go, in the past year, I am multiracial black. That's me.
1: We talk about the, you know, race in America is often stone cold black and white, but there are so many other elements involved in identity and culture and experience to add to the conversation. I was raised in some sundown towns in Southern Illinois. I spent some time there. So I come at it from, of course, the black and white lens. But Yvonne and I, throughout our marriage and throughout our relationship, have had a lot of uh, very fascinating conversations about um, how many others are there, right? Until we realize that we're not others. until right. We've been othered for, for, for too long, right?
0: I have a question about, did you have people in your family that, that I mean, you said that you, there were only like you and also in a big group of white people going to the school. Like, did you have people in your family? Did you know who, who actually passed? I feel like passing is something that people don't talk about, you know?
2: Yeah, I'm sure there were, but my... No, my my grandparents were very light, but they they did not pass. They were a kind of an anomaly. They lived in New Hampshire. They had their own business in Newburyport, Massachusetts, where they were furriers and tailors, and they had their own business that thrived. But they were one of few there. No, I don't know of anyone who really passed.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that we might be ready... Jason, are we ready?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, guys, we get to this point in our conversations and we call it our cocktail confession time. Are you guys ready?
0: We're ready. Great. Cool. So we've been talking about the theme of passing and tunis. Your question is, what have you had to do to get in the room? Well,
3: I think maybe I think maybe we should start with a little story about being in a room. You know mm. the story I'm talking about, right? Demel. <laughs> okay, there's just a good. There's a good story. We were in a room. Yeah. We were in the room with a lot of white people, and it was a event where there were people that knew me, and not so much Demel, but you know knew we were together, husband and wife.
2: Before you go on. I just want to say <laughs> you guys might not believe it, this. It but helps it really to remember
3: happened. that De- DeMille's name is DeMille Halliburton and my name is Monique Marshall, but right. Like, you know, sometimes you'll put you together, right. It's right. like mm-hmm. Monique Halliburton or something. So we're, we're standing with these other couples and we're having a lovely time. We like these people a lot. And one of the couples is trying to introduce us to another couple that doesn't know us at all and says, this is Monique and DeMille Huxtable. <laughs> and we...
2: <it's, laughs> oh my God. Subconsciously that, you know, it wasn't intentional.
0: So how's the weather? I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about the weather.
2: <laughs> but totally beat red she turned totally beet red because when, as soon as it came out of her mouth she realized what she said but it goes back to what i was talking about like michael jordan we're like the safe black people you know whatever and she subconsciously connected us with the the safe black family on tv
3: I don't know exactly what my response would be today, but certainly that was many, many, many years ago, and I definitely did not have any tools and have very many tools. I don't know what exactly I'd say today, but I might say something today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just one of those, and we moved on. Um, yeah. But but it, I just came to me because I was thinking about just getting in the room, and I'm aware of of the comfort that. Typically, white folks are comfortable with me. And I was having a really good conversation about this with with another person of color who was talking about giving up some piece of herself, you know, like, am I giving up pieces of myself? And though I one hundred percent have had to give up pieces of myself along the way but there were pieces of myself I didn't even realize I was giving up, you know? Like, it was, like, different, a different kind of a giving up because, really, the flip side of that is kind of, Jason, what you were alluding to as well, or even, like, Yvonne, what you were talking about, being multi... Multi. the mm-hmm. Having feet in in, in different places and different spaces, I was born there. I was born with my feet in white spaces and places. And, in fact... Those are spaces that I didn't have to try to feel comfortable. I actually was really comfortable there and and have been and can be and am. I'm not like um, giving up a thing, Um, not putting on a thing. This is just who I am, you know, and the who I am is 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 a biracial, multiracial black white woman who was raised by white people. And I'm also, you know, then there's that piece of a person that you like try to put your finger on. You have you know, more than one kid, and you're like, oh, that kid's an individual, and that one's an individual. Like, there's 100% something about me that is just, you know, my mother says, like, you were born easy and easygoing. And yeah, I think that's really true, too. So my nature um, is such, and my, my, the way that I was raised is such that I, I think I, I was, like, born in the room. Do you know? And so the more I learn about my full me, I think I'm I'm have to I'm I'm aware of it, and so I have to call myself on that sometimes. Like I have to name it out loud. Actually, say like, I, "Hey, you know why I'm in the room? Because I, I'm I'm easier for you to I'm easier. I'm easier. It's easier to be with me. Mm-hmm. There's for sure that there's something there. I'm still kind of unpacking it. I think you know, our whole lives we're unpacking ourselves and trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Pass it over to you, honey.
2: So part of it for me is that too, where I grew up in that space. So I'm comfortable in that space. It wasn't a a strain for me, but it doesn't mean that I would be accepted. So the other part of the story is I was brought into the room. And one example, which I love because I love this guy. He's been a client of mine for 20 years, Usher Raymond. He left his business manager and went to a white business manager told that business manager, I know you have your own entertainment insurance person that you use, DeMille is my guy and you're gonna use him. So not only did he remain a client, but after that business manager saw that I did as well or better than the brokers he was using, I ended up building up more business with that white business manager. But the only reason why I had the opportunity was because a black person who was in the room brought me in the room.
3: You've got to also just name your mother in all of this, because I think it was so intentional the way she gave you some tools to to enter the room, especially as a black man.
2: Yeah. Well, my father entered the room by knocking down the door. Like you know, my twin sister and I were two or three, and I have older siblings, and we were living in Queens, and my father said that he wanted to move to a different neighborhood because he wanted his kids to have a better education. So he went up to Westchester, found a lot that he wanted to build on, and he went through, you know, he was denied, a white couple came, you know, he went to some agency, the white couple came in there, and of course that plot was available. So he ended up suing for us to get into the room. And I honestly believe he died young because he had to go through and bust down those doors. And the stress killed the guy early. But my mother taught me tennis, how to play tennis, and drove me to every free clinic she could find. And that sport has enabled me to get into the room because it's just one of those things where... You know, just the other day, I ended up playing at this billionaire's house in Bel Air because I was brought in by a a white friend to play doubles. And it goes back to Monique and talking about kids. If you're not exposed to people and they're the other, you're afraid. You don't want, you know, you have these preconceived notions about who these people are. But when you go and play tennis with someone and you joke around and you give them shit and you, you know, whatever, like, oh, shit, like, I can do business with the guy, I can be friendly with this guy or whatever. So that was my mom's way of giving me tools to, if you want to say, be that safe person to get in the door that way, to expose yourself to other people.
0: Yeah, that tennis was another way for people who might have other assumptions about you to actually relate to you in something that you really love and you're good at. I'm going to do that for my kids. (laughs) Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I I, I hope I don't have to be able to, you know, I would like for them to be able to do whatever they want to do, but to find that thing. I mean, I guess that's what golf
1: is for some people. My family, we weren't able to uh, join the country club because of me. My parents were very active in the community and all of that. Fine, upstanding white folk in Illinois. I was probably six at the time. When the vote came to let our family in to this country club, the story goes, a woman stood up and said, your family is wonderful. You guys are doing great work in the community. We we, we love you all. But that Jason, when he gets a little bit older, there might be some issues. And another white woman stood up and said, what do you care about that? By the time that happens, you're going to be dead. But... We were denied access to that country club. I still remember my brother and, and my dad going out golfing together. I didn't do that until he passed away in 2014 until recently. I was not given those tools to know. And so I I, I appreciate greatly what you're saying because that levels the playing field. Like you said, when you can go talk shit on, on whatever court it is, right? And you can see eye to eye with somebody that levels the playing field instantly And when you don't have that access, then we're stuck in the otherization of people and we don't allow peoples in. That's an incredible story, man.
0: I have a follow-up question because as we're speaking and we're defining the room, we've all spoken in terms of like the white people in the room. And so can we talk a little bit about the room, like defining it for ourselves, like
1: Yes. Yeah, so you both have created your own rooms too. I'm sorry, Yvonne. I'm just piggybacking. I don't mean to take the mic, although I just totally just did. So oh, just I'll shut totally up. Please totally go did. ahead. We were just... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's, it's the ramos but, uh, sorry.
0: I'm sorry. I'm just recognizing, I know that we're talking about passing, but I'm also recognizing that I have narrowly defined the room. So how much of that is on me? What do you guys think? <laughs> how are you defining the room? White spaces? Yeah, I realized in this moment That's, as we're talking, mm-hmm. I'm like, I have been defining the room as places where white people are only.
2: That's pretty much how we were defining it, too, right?
3: I think so. Yeah. Right. I think we're talking about dominant culture. Yes. So, in connection to race and passing, thinking about white space, but I'm also thinking about, you know, temporarily able-bodied space and yeah. heteronormative space and the spaces where really it's difficult to come in if, if you're scary, if you're surprising, if like if you can't actually open the door or <laughs>
1: whatever. Right, um, right. Yeah. There's a line from the novella itself that says, we are all passing for something. That's, that's amazing, Monique, that you just said, like, if you can't turn the doorknob, right? Like, if you don't look a certain way. If you don't walk a certain way, talk a certain way, dress a certain way, whatever that is, then you have to uh, either fit yourself into what is expected or accepted or or not.
0: What have you guys taught your kids that's different from what your, maybe your parents did?
3: Language is the first thing that
2: comes. Oh, they definitely have language, yeah.
3: Right, language for all the parts of their identity. and i think for um, at least my i mean speaking of my mother now she raised me i think i think she just didn't have language you know i think she would have happily given it if she had had it yeah language hopefully given them you know the the goal was really given to give them a sense of um, that you are valuable and beautiful and strong and powerful and brilliant and and that you can be, you know, whoever you want to be. but only, only kind of like I just think of little little moments. Do you remember the time, Mel where we had one interesting like teacher situation with one of our children where there was like an insistence that, that our child wear something that was like more professional and putting that in air quotes because you can't all see it um, for a presentation or something. And... We all pushed back because our that particular child had a very specific way of presenting herself, and we' hundred percent support supported her and her sister in the way they wanted to like the clothes they want to put on their body, and that it's your body, like you don't, you know, so I think there's that generally that sense of you get to do you, and and I mean, I think, and i'm gonna I'm gonna say like, I'm now kind of continuing the parenting into the adulthood, into the adult children that they are, but thinking about like which pieces of passing or being in the room did I overlook? Like for me, I wasn't grown up with an intentional getting in the room. It just was kind of the assumption that of course you were going in the room. Of course we're all in the room, right? But as an adult, I know that's different. And I think there's always a fantasy. There's a little fantasy that I think I held on to that, like, of course, everybody will see, you know, my children as belonging everywhere. You know? yeah. And then when it hits you, like, oh, my God, that person's not seeing my child the way I see my child. You're like, oh, did I do enough to, like, shore them up for that, you know? I think we had those conversations with with our kids specifically around um Gender identity and, and appearance, because both of our, our children were misgendered, and so it was interesting how like uh, that kind of it, it partnered with race, like the mm-hmm. the oh my god, there's a boy in the bathroom when people are saying that about your little girl, like there's a boy in the bathroom. Oh, there's a black boy in the bathroom. That's mm. like right. That's a whole nother thing.
0: Well, I just I want to you know say thank you to guys to you both for your vulnerability and for your openness and for telling us, you know, such amazing stories about your family and how you grew up and and our hope always is when we're having these conversations that other people who felt like they have not been seen that they will see themselves in these conversations and and then go off and start opening conversations with other people so <laughs> you guys are amazing. I can't believe our actual date is here on this our yeah, couple's on date. It's on our podcast. Uh, yeah. it's not in yeah,
2: person.
1: <laughs> this is just the beginning. I'm fascinated by the conversation of the room. I'm fascinated by by access, by compassion, the teaching of the children, of everybody, the use of kindness and compassion as we navigate these spaces, but also having the sense of self to be aware of the surroundings. It's the actor and me, know your know your audience, right? And <laughs> your storytelling, but also being fearless in your exploration of your identity. I'm taking that in as a father. Our kids are young. They're 12, 10, and six. Their future is to come. And we're in the moments with them right now. I just am grateful for this conversation, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
3: It's been great hearing your stories, too.
1: I feel like we could keep going and going and diving in more and more, and we certainly (laughs) will in the future. And Just thanks for taking the time to talk to us tonight.
0: Yay!
1: Absolutely. Good seeing
2: you.
0: Thank you. The Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil, and gifted with second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world.
1: W. E. B. Dubois.
0: Thank you for listening, and
1: please, please drink, drink responsibly. responsibly.
0: This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers-Sirachi, co-producer Matthew Sirachi, podcast coordinator A.J. Dinsmore, and Liam Allen for their original composition and vocals.
1: We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guests Monique Marshall and Demille Halliburton. Remember to grab our Ramos Gin Fizz recipe and show notes by going to lagralanespirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.